Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D. R-E-V-I-E-W, or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Wednesday the 1st of June, 2022 News. Capricorn Energy, formerly Cairn Energy and Tullow Oil to merge. This article is by Ian McConnell. Edinburgh-based Capricorn Energy has agreed an all-share merger of equals with Tullow Oil, under which the headquarters of the combined group will be in London. The deal aimed at creating a leading African energy company listed in London We'll see Simon Thompson stand down as Chief Executive of Capricorn. He will step down from this post and will chair the Integration Steering Committee, being established to help with the integration of the two companies. Mr Thompson has for 11 years been Chief Executive of Capricorn and its predecessor Cairn Energy, which was founded by former Scottish Rugby International Sir Bill Gamble in the late 1980s. On completion of the combination, Capricorn shareholders will hold approximately 47% of the combined group and Tullow shareholders around 53%. Tullow Oil, which is based in London, said of the headquarters plan for the enlarged group, it is intended that following completion of the combination, The headquarters of the combined group will be at Tullow's existing offices in London and it is intended that the combined group will also retain premises in Edinburgh and through the application of a flexible work policy enable employees to operate from both premises. The combined group will comply with any obligations to inform and consult with employees and their representatives in respect of these intentions and Tullow Oil highlighted a focus on Africa for the enlarged group. Laying out the rationale for the deal, it declared the boards of Tullow and Capricorn believe the combination has compelling strategic, operational and financial rationale with the ability to deliver substantial benefits to shareholders, host nations and other stakeholders. The combination represents a unique opportunity to create a leading African energy company listed in London with the financial flexibility and human resource capability to access and accelerate near-term organic growth, add new reserves and resources cost-effectively, generate significant future returns for shareholders and pursue further consolidation. The combined group is committed to building a sustainable future through responsible oil and gas development in close partnership and collaboration with joint venture partners and host governments. This article is by Ian McConnell. Hello, it's your reader Jackie here. The Herald, Wednesday the 1st of June 2022. 
news. SNP cuts mean middle-class university applicants risk losing out. This article is by John Paul Holden. Cuts to funded university places mean qualified middle-income applicants risk being rejected in their bid to get onto popular courses, the Fair Access Commissioner has suggested. In his final annual report before stepping down, Sir Peter Scott praises support for learners from poorer backgrounds, but also highlights grounds for concern. Scotland has already met an interim target of ensuring 16% of new entrants to full-time first-degree courses come from the 20% most deprived communities as measured by the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation, SIMD. Sir Peter's report states, although progress towards 18% in four years' time and 20% by the end of the decade cannot be taken for granted, Scotland continues to set the pace in terms of fair access to higher education among the UK nations. However, his analysis points to a less positive picture elsewhere, amid fears that features of the university admissions process may create tighter, more challenging conditions for better-off applicants. Unlike England's tuition fee-based arrangement, the system here is characterised by strict recruitment controls, with ministers predefining the annual funding for teaching Scottish students. This effectively puts a cap on numbers and makes it more likely that application rejection rates will jump when demand for places is strong. Echoing wider worry over current and future pressures, Sir Peter's report states there has been a persistent and nagging concern that SIMD 20 applicants may displace better qualified applicants from other SIMD quintiles. In particular, the fear is that applicants in the middle quintiles will be squeezed between SIMD 80 applicants with the qualifications and connections that effectively guarantee them university places and SIMD 20 applicants, who are the focus of fair access efforts. In the past two or three years, that concern has tended to abate, but there is always the potential that it could flare up again. Sir Peter suggests there is now a growing danger that many Scots could see their university dreams dashed. The overall number of funded places has been cut from 123,225 in 2021-22 to 121,797 in 22-23, he says in his report. Currently, overall applications for 2022 entry are lower than for 2021 entry, but SIMD 20 applications have increased, so it is possible the lower cap on funded places could lead to greater competition, which could reactivate fears about displacement. Sir Peter's report also calls on the Scottish Government to commit to providing an adequate number of fully funded places in higher education. It says this will reduce the possibility that progress towards fair access for the most deprived students might increase competition 
for places among other social groups. Previous analysis of June deadline statistics from the Universities and Colleges Admission Service, UCAS, showed the number of 18-year-olds Scotland domiciled applicants had surged from 17,160 in 2020 to 19,930 last year. Crucially, there was also an increase in the rejection rate of their applications. Already much higher than in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, it shot up from just under 32.5% to a little over 36.3% between 2020 and 21, marking the first rise since 2016. At the time, Dr Mark Corver, former Director of Analysis and Research at UCAS, told the Herald that Scotland's cap-and-grant system for managing student numbers was particularly vulnerable to rising demand. He also said demographic trends were adding to the pressure, adding that the UK could see its population of 18-year-olds increase by 25% between 2020 and 2030. Scotland is set for growth of around 20% or just below. Dr Corver said unless you adjust the number of places available each year to match the changes in the number of people who have applied, a number control system is inevitably going to lead to harsher treatment of applications when there's a surge in demand. The Scottish Government has insisted there is no evidence of significant displacement at a national level. A spokesperson said it is the Government's ambition that every child growing up in Scotland, regardless of their background, should have an equal chance of going to university. Commenting on the wider report, Jamie Hepburn, Higher Education Minister, said the Commissioner for Fair Access makes it clear that Scotland continues to set the pace in the UK in terms of fair access to higher education, with a record number of Scottish students from deprived areas enrolling in university for the first time. I would like to thank Sir Peter Scott for his contribution as Scotland's first Fair Access Commissioner and pay tribute to the lasting legacy he will leave. We will consider the recommendations of the report carefully. While excellent progress has been made by our institutions, we cannot let up on the momentum in the face of the challenges that lie ahead. We believe every young person should have the opportunity to reach their full potential, no matter their circumstances. This article is by John Paul Holden. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of June 2022. My name's Amy. Rangers defender Connor Goldson on why he signed a new deal by James Kearney. Rangers defender Connor Goldson put an end to speculation over his future on Wednesday afternoon as the centre half signed a bumper four-year contract extension and he insists the decision was made because he loves the winning feeling at Ibrox. The 29-year-old has been a mainstay at the back since surviving in 2018, missing only a handful of matches in those four years. He was there as Rangers regained their Premiership crown last term. He was there as the club won their first Scottish Cup title in over a decade and he was there as Giovanni van Bronckhorst's men fell agonisingly short in the Europa League final. The former Brighton man has been a huge figure in Rangers' rise over the last few years, and supporters were thrilled when the extension was announced on social media at lunchtime. 
Some were worried that Goldson would be on his way out of Ibrox, but the man himself insists he is comfortable at the Premiership Club. Everyone knows I had a decision to make, Goldson told Rangers TV. I went away with my family last week and made the decision to stay here. We're all settled here. My family's settled here and football-wise I'm happy. I just thought this was the right decision to make. I've got used to winning games more most weeks and I love that feeling. I want to keep on winning. I want to keep on trying to make this take this club to the next level. I said last year I wanted to stay and try and win title number 56 and 57 and that was a massive part of me committing to the football club. I spoke to sporting director Ross Wilson and the manager yesterday and I said I wanted to do it. I want to stay here and try and win. That's the main reason for me staying. That article was by James Kearney. Recorded from the Herald on the 1st of June 2022. My name's Amy. Alan Pardew and ex-Kilmarnock boss Alex Dyer leave CSKA Sophia over racist abuse. By David Irvin. Alan Pardew and former Kilmarnock boss Alex Dyer have left CSKA Sofia after racist abuse aimed at players. The duo joined the Bulgarian side in late April but have walked over unacceptable behaviour from a small group of organised racist fans. Sky Sports report four black players were subject to racist abuse and had bananas thrown in their direction by a group of supporters before a match against Botev Plodiv. The news outlet says Pardue demanded talks with club chiefs over the racist incident, which came after a cup final loss to rivals Laviska Sofia. But today, Pardue and Dyer, who was the first black man to work in a coaching capacity at the club, have left their roles over the shocking abuse. Pardue said in a statement, The events before and after the match against Botev Plodiv were unacceptable not only for me, but also for my assistant Alex Dyer, and for my players. Our players decided to play out of loyalty towards the club. This small group of organised racist fans who try to sabotage the game are not the fans I want to coach the team in front of. That's definitely not the right way for CSKA because such club deserves a lot more. I want to express my gratitude towards, towards all true CSKA fans for their support and passion. I also want to thank Grisha and Danny Ganjev, the club owners, for their efforts to bring the club forward despite all the challenges and circumstances. It's been a privilege and honour to serve this great club. Unfortunately, my time here has come to an end. The article is by David Irvin. From the Herald, Scotland. Wednesday the 1st of June 2022. From the opinion section. Ian McWhorter. Ukraine's struggle puts our national debate into perspective. By columnist Ian McWhorter. Shen Nerve Mayor Loy Kryeny. That's a phonetic version of the start of the Ukrainian national anthem. It roughly translates as Long Live Ukraine. Scottish fans are being urged to sing along tonight, or try to. It will be rare indeed to hear Hamden roar for the rival nation's anthem in a World Cup qualifying match, but one suspects the Scottish fans will give a good account of themselves and that the bicolour flag of Ukraine will be as prominent as the Sultar. It's going to be emotional, that's for sure. There's never been a football match quite like this. The Tartan army do not agree with the former Scotland captain, Graeme Souness, that Ukraine should win. But they're acutely aware that the rest of the world is rooting for the opposition. The winner will play Wales on Sunday for a place in the Qatar finals. Just Scotland's luck, the best team in years and the first real prospect of qualifying for the World Cup in more than two decades, and everyone wants us to lose. 
except Russia. The planet wants a repeat of the Eurovision Song Contest. But you can't win football by algorithm, as Bill Shankly might have said. It will, as ever, come down to boots on the ground in a contest of skill and sinew. Though it may be difficult for the Scots to go in hard against Ukraine, every foul will look like a war crime. One can only imagine what is going through the minds of the Ukrainian players. The coach, Alexander Petrikov, tried to sign up to fight in Kiev but was rejected. President Zelensky clearly felt he would better assist the war effort as a football hero. Mr Petrikov has reportedly been using jokes to psych his players into match play mode, giving an entirely new meaning to the phrase gallows humour. The match comes at an acutely difficult moment for Ukrainian patriots. The war is not going well. The Russians are winning in the Donbass. A hundred Ukrainians are dying every day in the most bloody conflict seen in Europe since the Second World War. The European Union, which dithered over the sending arms of arms to Ukraine after the Russian invasion in February, has dithered again over banning imports of Russian oil and gas. Shamefully, European countries will continue to finance Vladimir Putin's war machine by purchasing his hydrocarbons. Europe is also stalling on arms supplies. President Zelensky is desperately appealing for long-range artillery and tanks, which Germany appears reluctant to authorise. You sense that European capitals are waiting to see if the Russians can consolidate their position in the east of Ukraine preparatory to peace talks. They don't want to back the loser. Many in the West, from Henry Kissinger down, have been calling for the Ukrainians to be realistic about their chances of driving the Russian invaders out of their country. They already lost Crimea in 2014. Just accept that Ukraine will be partitioned. It used to be part of Russia anyway. Why waste more lives? Isn't Jojo better than more war? This is what's called real politic. Many European leaders would frankly prefer this war to end now so that the global economy can recover its balance. But Ukrainians aren't minded to give up their country for the convenience of Western leaders whose countries have not been invaded in living memory. It is a war for national survival. Moreover, self-interested realists in Brussels and the US Congress don't seem to realise you can't bargain with militant imperialism. Putin will not stop at the new borders of the Donbass. There's no going back to the old normal. It is still essential for all our security that Russia loses this first full European war in 80 years. The invasion has shattered the complacent assumptions of the last 30 years. Borders were supposed to be an anachronism in the age of globalisation European integration and climate change. Nationalism is still regarded by the metropolitan elite as the passion only of narrow-minded Brexiteers and Scottish separatists. But Ukraine has reminded everyone that nationalism and borders are there for a reason. They are the first line of defence against invasion for a start. 
It is nationalism that has motivated Ukrainians to give their lives. Nations are also the guarantors of democracy. Indeed, elective democracy is only possible within clearly defined national borders. The modern nation-state emerged in the 19th century as countries fought for independence from the empires that had dominated Europe since the Middle Ages. Empires like the Russian one that Putin wishes to restore by annexing Ukraine. Scotland occupies a curious position in the dialectics of nationhood. In the 19th century, Scots of all classes were happy to be part of Great Britain and the Imperial Project. Scottish regiments fought heroically for the British Empire in conflicts like the 1865 Crimean War. Scotland did not regard itself as an oppressed nation or an internal colony like Ireland. Far from it. We were partners in the colonisation of a quarter of the globe. Only in the mind of the most anglophobic nationalist is Scotland today an oppressed nation. SNP folk may complain about Westminster control or the cancer of London domination, but Scotland is not going to be invaded by England. Scots have full democratic and human rights. Our culture is not threatened. We are not exploited economically by a foreign power, except arguably over oil revenues, but we don't talk about Scotland's oil anymore. Scotland still receives subsidies through our flexible friend the Barnett Formula, as yesterday's spending review confirmed. So, Ukraine cuts both ways in the independence debate. Many Scots want to take back control from Westminster, and Scotland has a right to national self-determination. But, as we cheer Ukraine on the Hamden pitch, we can be thankful that the struggle in Scotland in some respects is a phony one. For all the harsh words between Nicholas Sturgeon and Boris Johnson, and whatever finally happens in the constitutional rows that will shortly rage in the courts, our national question is still essentially an argument among friends and neighbours, not mortal enemies. And, on Ukraine, both Scots and English can unite in saying Slava Ukraini. And that was an opinion piece by Emit Water. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 1st of June 2022, Arts and Entertainments, Ruth and Penn by Emily Pine, Hamish Hamilton, by Rosemary Goring, columnist. Ruth and Penn, Emily Pine, Hamish Hamilton, £14.99, review, Rosemary Goring. Emily Pine wastes no time in laying out the territory of her debut novel, Ruth and Penn is the fictional follow-up to an acclaimed collection of essays, Notes to Self. That deeply personal series of accounts offered politicised reflections based on her experience of an alcoholic father, difficult youth and miscarriage. It also touched on the abuse women endure in various shapes through the course of their lives. It's little surprise that as a professor of drama at University College Dublin, Pine knows how to tell a story. What is striking, however, is how confidently she has switched from memoir to fiction, as if she had been writing novels for years. On the first page, Ruth, a middle-aged Irish therapist, wakens and goes to the bathroom, 
This mundane act triggers recollections of the terrible phone conversation she and her husband had the evening before. He chose not to return home, and this morning his side of the bed is cold. As Ruth prepares for work, the reasons for her failing marriage remain unclear, but there's no doubt that the hospital appointment she must attend that day is part of it. As is instantly clear, one strand of Pine's intense and powerful story is dictated by female physiology. In Ruth's case, hers is a body that has suffered more than its share of problems, not least fertility issues and a recent devastating miscarriage. Hence the question of whether she and her husband of many years are on the verge of splitting. Pine's other eponymous character is 16-year-old Penn, who's preparing for possibly the biggest day of her life. Skipping school to attend an Extinction Rebellion protest, she intends to ask her best friend Alice out on a date. What would be unnerving enough for everyone is even more challenging for Penn. Diagnosed with autism, she finds communicating her feelings exceedingly hard. But while her mother tells her that there is no normal, Penn will be normal if it kills her. Taking place in a single day in Dublin, October 7, 2019, Ruth and Penn is a tale told in tandem, although such contact as there is between the two women, who don't know each other, is fleeting and incidental. Narrated mainly in the third person, their thoughts unspool in a controlled version of stream of consciousness, as when Ruth is having lunch in a cafe. The chicken is tasty, good, and Ruth thinks again of being vegetarian. It wasn't justifiable, really, eating other living things but then it feels overwhelming to consider all your life choices at every meal. Maybe those two girls were vegetarian, maybe they would save them all. Minute by minute, hour by hour, readers follow Ruth and Penn through their day and through the streets, cafes and bars of Dublin. It's as if we are a webcam catching them as they pass by, Ruth in her office where she deals with other people's issues more effectively than with her own, or in the hospital enduring yet another internal examination. Penn heading for the climate march, trying to blot out memories of a cruel incident at school a year earlier, after which she started to see a therapist. Brackets, it became best half hour of the week. Close brackets. She's both excited and anxious about how the day will unfold, and with good reason. There's no avoiding the influence of James Joyce's Ulysses in any fiction that covers this city like a traveller following a memory map in the space of 24 hours. To the very last page, with its direct nod to Molly Bloom, Joyce's presence is palpable. Although Pine's prose shares little of his poetry or vision, her voice is distinctive and strong. This is fiction that delineates character, mood and a person's past through the lathering of shampoo or a kettle being put on to boil. Ruth looks in the mirror, sees her still creased face, sees her body in the navy suit, thinks, oh, this is who I am. But the thought is drowned by the roar of the hairdryer. The subjects Pine handles suit this prosaic, unhurried approach. As becomes evident, the significance of what both women have experienced and are coping with now is heightened rather than diminished by being refracted through the most ordinary of everyday doings. Such a technique risks becoming tedious and occasionally it demands patience. Nevertheless, it is a tight framing device for a story whose components stretch back years. Some of its gratifications are those of film, Vivid, immediate, the character's surroundings and accessories crucial to its mood. All this Pine executes with panache. Less assured or convincing is the implied parallel between Ruth and Penn. Why she's chosen someone with autism remains unclear, unless it is to highlight that everybody struggles, a fact Penn recognises herself. Even for people without sensory processing differences, emotions can be really hard to read. 
basically thinks pain, the entire rom-com genre is proof that feelings aren't easy. If so, however, the situations the two are going through and what they must navigate today and in the future seem very differently weighted. If the implication is that pain can surmount problems equally effectively in their own way, I remain unconvinced. The decision to play one woman's story off the other, showing their touching points and differences, is the novel's weakness, creating a sense of an awkward twinning, with neither in step with the other. Pine's artful symmetries feel just that, artful, not natural. Yet they are more irksome in hindsight than when reading, as Pine sweeps readers up in a plot that tugs the heartstrings and keeps a will-they-won't-they momentum to the very end. Illuminating the shapes grief and anger take, the novel has moments of acuity when focused in Ruth. Although rather too overtly propelled by issues, it illuminates a wider cast of characters than its central pair, most notably Ruth's husband Aidan. Like his wife, he's swithering over the whether they should stay together. Fix me, he wants to say, or release me. Pine's point is quietly made, if only it were that simple. By Rosemary Goring. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 6th of June 2022, from the sports section, Beth Morrow looks ahead to the prestigious women's tour event. By Susan Eaglestaff, sports writer. Only a few years ago, Beth Morrow described herself as looking like a goon on a bike. So it says much for the speed of her progress that over the coming week she will be racing in the most prestigious women's bike race in this country, the Women's Tour. The race is the UK's leading international stage race and Morrow, who is a member of the CAMS Basso team, will be riding alongside the likes of reigning national champion Georgie Pfeiffer, UCI world record holder Joss Loudon and former champions Cassia Nilwandoma and Corian Labikek. Morrow who is just 19, admits being on the biggest stage of all is surreal. I'm very excited. Riding the women's tour has been a goal of mine for so long, so it's incredibly exciting to be actually doing it, the Edinburgh athlete says. It's a huge race to be part of and such a good experience to be alongside such big names. I'm expecting it to be very, very hard, but I feel like I'm in good shape and the racing we've done over the past few months has stood me in good stead, so I think I know what to expect. As recently as 2018, Morrow was only riding her bike once a week. She began her sporting career as a runner before transitioning into triathlon and it was her natural strength in the bike in the the latter that planted the seed that perhaps she should give cycling a go. Success was far from immediate, but there was something about cycling that encouraged her to continue, despite being a very long way from the top of the pile. I was relatively good at athletics when I was growing up. I was at national level but I was nothing special. But I used to get ridiculous anxiety even though I wasn't that good, so I often didn't really enjoy it, the teenager says. I'd grown up cycling with my family, so I had a good base, but I had absolutely no speed, so when I started racing, everyone seemed so fast and I was getting lapped time and time again. I didn't get disheartened, although I don't know why not, because I probably should have. My expectations of myself were very, very low, and that helped, and even though I wasn't doing that well, I still enjoyed it, so that's why I stuck with it. And I had a lot of support and people telling me I had potential. In 2018, Morrow joined her local cycling club, Edinburgh Road Club, as well as a Scottish cycling development project. It was the following year, however, that things really began to take off. She was invited to join the Scottish cycling programme and began racing more seriously, 
Although with little of the professional equipment and what she describes as a highly suspect technique, Moro is disparaging about how, much she, how she must have looked. But as her performances improved, so too did the number of people who recognised her talent, which, last year, led to her being signed by Story Racing, the team led by Paralympic champion Sarah Story. It was, however, her move this season to the UCI Continental team, Cam's Basso, that has allowed the teenager to make a move into the big time. A disrupted winter caused by a knee injury and a bout of Covid was not what she had planned, but the first few months of being a professional cyclist has been a thrill as well as a steep learning curve. It's been amazing to be part of a pro team. The team is really good fun. It's a great environment and I'm really enjoying the process, says Morrow, who is studying urban planning at Loughborough University. I feel like I'm improving loads. It was hard at the beginning of the season because I didn't feel as prepared as I wanted to be because of the injury and Covid setbacks and that's not a nice feeling. I am not at all confident in my ability, even when things are going well, never mind when they're not. But I still did okay and that really helped my confidence. You can't always be in top form so you need to learn to race even when things aren't perfect. That's where my inexperience shows. I'd never had the experience of turning up to a race and not feeling fully prepared, so it was a good lesson for me. Morrow's sole focus is on this week's Women's Tour, which begins in Colchester today and ends in Oxfordshire on Saturday, but her long-term goals include making it to the top level of her sport. I have goals about what I'd like to do if I could become a full-time professional cyclist. Becoming a pro is the aim, but for now, I'm just loving the process and as long as I keep improving, that's the main thing. But I want to keep moving up, and a world tour team is definitely the main aim in the longer term. And that was an article by Susan Eaglestaff from the Herald Scotland. Monday the 6th of June 2022, in the sports section, Digging into the history of the beautiful game in Scotland, by Sandra Dick. Overlooked by high-rise flats and a short kick of the ball from the National Stadium, Cathkin Park is the final resting place for a slice of football history and symbol of how the mighty, once mighty can fall. Had things turned out differently, this year may have seen the terraces packed for the 150th anniversary celebrations of the team which called it their home ground. Instead, 3rd Lanark AC, a champion winning side and former members of both the Scottish Football Association and the Scottish Football League, stuttered and died in 1967. In Cathkin Park, the site of the second Hampden Park, and also former home of Queen's Park with its eerie overgrown terracing, became a poignant reminder of how quickly fortunes can change in the fickle world of football. Now, in a bid to reveal some of its glorious past, archaeologists are set to carry out a series of excavations at the historic football ground, which, it's hoped, will uncover some of its long-hidden features and artefacts from its heyday. The excavations will see a, t- a series of trenches dug in the area of the original pavilion, grandstand and terraces, in search of clues as to how they were originally constructed and evidence of the people who gathered in them to support and play the beautiful game. It's hoped that the exploration will help point researchers towards the location of the original centre spot, penalty spot, pitch outline and goalposts. As well as seeking out archaeological remains of the football ground, 
The project will examine the area around Cathkin Park for any lingering traces of how it was once a focal point for some of the nation's most important football fixtures. The dig, which will span two weeks in June, follows a small scale excavation at the ground in 2017. Items uncovered then alerted archaeologists to the potential of further exploration. It is also part of a wider effort to explore the origins of football in a square mile area of the south side, which encompasses the first, second and third Hampton Parks and Cathcart Cemetery, the final resting place for the architects of the Scotch game, credited with teaching the world how to play football. Dr Paul Mortar, Senior Project Officer at Archaeology Scotland, said it's hoped the latest excavation will uncover tangible evidence that helps to bring the story behind Third Lanark and the grounds place in Scottish football history to life. The excavation in 2017 found the site of the pavilion of Third Lanark and some nice artefacts relating to the use of the building, including stripped pieces of red and white china cups. Third Lanark played in a red and white stri- strip. Some fans of the club were there at the time of the dig and were very excited to see them. There were also some glass bottles which you think might have been used by the players after Third Lanark's last game at the park, he said. The latest excavation will involve at least four trenches of around four metres by four metres and half a metre deep, which will be hand dug and carefully sifted through. Among the items that archaeology team expect to find are typical of the kind of things modern sports fans may carry, sweet wrappers, drinks containers, coins and tobacco products. But they also hope the dig will reveal some details of how structures within the ground, such as the grandstand, were built and how the park's layout changed down the years. Football has been linked to Cathkin Park since 1884, when it was built as the second Hamden Park. It was rented by Queen's Park FC, whose first game at the ground in October 1884 against Dumbarton attracted 7,000 fans. The ground went on to host nine Scottish Cup finals between 1885 and 1899, a series of finals for the Glasgow Cup and Glasgow Merchants Charity Cup, and six Scotland international fixtures. Third Lanark was founded in 1872 and moved to Cathkin Park in 1903. Highly successful and rarely out of the second league, the highest leagues in Scottish football, the club followed winning the league in 1903-04 season by beating Rangers 3-1 in the final of the Scottish Cup final the following year, its second cup win. The side was so highly acclaimed that it went on to organise a tour of North America in 1921 with a number of guest players leading it to be billed as a Scotland 11 and a later tour of South America when the team took on the Argentina national squad. The side was managed by football legend Bill Shankly between 1957 and 1959 but despite reaching European competition in 1961 its financially started to give cause for concern. Players went unpaid and opposition clubs complained about not getting the share of gate money and cheques that bounced. Third Lanark's final victory was an away match against Clyde Bank, attended by just 259 people. Just hours earlier, a court of session in Edinburgh had heard a petition to have the club liquidated over an outstanding £200 debt. The club ceased to exist in July 1967, and eventually most of Cathkin Park's structures were removed, leaving just the terraces around three sides of the ground. The pitch, however, remains in use. The Jimmy Johnson Academy uses the park for training and games, 
while the third Lanark name lives on in the form of Third Lanark AFC, which currently plays in the Central Scottish Amateur Football League. The excavation will involve professional archaeologists from charity Archaeology Scotland, working with paying participants who will be trained in archaeology techniques. As part of the charity's Historic Environment Scotland, supported new audience project, refugees, asylum seekers and local Glaswegians who have health and social issues will also be involved. The project is also working with Football Heritage Campaign Group, the Hamden Collection. Launched in 2017, it hopes to preserve the story of how football evolved and flourished in Glasgow's south side and took the passing game to the world. Dr Murtai said that it is hoped that Cathkin Park excavation may solve some of the mysteries surrounding how football evolved in the area. You never know what you will find until you do it. Hopefully there will be some nice stuff there, he added. It's a unique place. And that article was by Sandra Dick from the Herald Scotland. Monday the 6th of June 2022 from the sports section. Watching how Stephen Gerrard fares without Michael Beale is going to be fascinating. The Monday kickoff by James Morgan. How will Gerrard fare without his right hand man? It will be interesting to note how the respective campaigns for Aston Villa and Queen's Park Rangers transpire over the course of the next season. The latter appointed Michael Beale, Stephen Gerrard's first team coach of choice at Rangers and latterly Villa Park, as their new manager last week to replace the outgoing Mark Warburton, himself no stranger to the hot seat at Ibrox. The 41-year-old Beale had made no secret of his desire to take on a top job for himself in the past, saying just last year, 100% I want to be a manager one day, but I have a very unique idea of where I want to be a manager. I don't just want to be a manager in the football league, I want to be a manager within Europe and in different countries. I'm just exploring and learning with this game, so I don't feel the need or urge to rush off and be a manager. Everyone's allowed to change their mind, of course, but taking on the QPR job sounds a bit like a compromise on Beale's behalf. The beneficiaries are likely to be the championship side. Beale was given warm plaudits by Jurgen Klopp when he left Liverpool to become assistant manager of Sao Paulo in 2016. The German saying, He is a very serious person and I'm sure he thought about it. It's a big adventure for sure. He did a wonderful job here and we worked really well together. Villa have been active earlier in the summer transfer market, bringing in Diego Carlos from Seville, Buba Cabar Camera from Marseille, and making Philip Coutinho's transfer from Barcelona permanent. However, it is no secret that Bale was viewed as the real coaching power behind the throne during his time at Rangers, and while the Gerard Bale axis has hardly been a revelation, despite a promising start to their tenure in the Midlands, it will be interesting to observe how the fall England captain fares without his trusted lieutenant beside him in the Villa dugout. A chance for Clark to experiment. It's very much a case of after the Lord Mayor show for Scotland at Hampden on Wednesday night, as Armenia visits a Nations League duty. Given the lethargic performance of some of Scotland's players in last week's playoff against Ukraine, it should provide Steve Clark with the perfect opportunity to give playing time to some of the fringe members of this squad even if this does represent the start of the European Championship qualifying process for 2024. Armenia arrived in 92 in the world and had won just one international in 12 matches prior to Saturday's 1-0 victory over the Republic of Ireland in Yerevan. 
That should mean starts for those in the periphery of Cart squad, such as the newly promoted Nottingham Forest defender Scott McKenna and Aberdeen Lewis, Aberdeen's Lewis Ferguson. Experimentation should be considered in the striking positions, namely Ross Stewart and Jacob Brown, especially given the listless performances turned in by Lyndon Dykes and Shea Adams in the defeat by Ukraine. A hard one to swallow for Dallas. Andy Dallas took something of a risk leaving the relative sanctuary of League 2 when he departed Cambridge United for Solihull Moors last summer. The 22-year-old former Rangers striker had spent the previous season on loan at Weymouth and could have been forgiven for thinking that he might be in danger of disappearing off the radar had he stuck around for too long in the National League. Nevertheless, impressed by their training setup and the progressive thinking of the club, Dallas told himself that it would not be long before he was returning to English football's fourth tier. Alas, following yesterday's defeat over Grimsby Town in the playoff final at Wembley, that dream ended in agony. The optimist would say that based on this year's exploits, it is surely only a matter of time before promotion is secured, but as Dallas himself warned earlier this year, the teams pushing for promotion in our league would be comfortable in League 2. There's not much between the levels, but it is hard to ask it's a hard ask to get out of this league. Golf's Rebels putting money over morals. This column is old enough to remember the original Rebel Cricket Tour to South Africa, in which Graeme Gooch, John Embury and Geoffrey Boycott, plus a couple of has beens and never would bees, defied the International Cricket Council by playing in the apartheid state. On the table was filthy lucre. A particularly tempting incentive, given that cricketers were paid a pittance back in the days before central contracts and full-blown professionalism. Which brings us to the Saudi Arabian Golf League, which pulled off something of a heist last week when it announced that Dustin Johnson, the world number 13, and Graham McDowell, himself a major winner, had signed up for the controversial LIV Golf Series and all of its sports-washing connotations. McDowell called it a compelling opportunity and referred to himself as that business, carefully ensuring he inserted all the right noises about being the right decision for my, for me and my family, with significant riches on offer. For a man who's won just under $20 million in career earnings, that all sounds rather euphemistically like putting money over morals to me. Where now for Murray? Andy Murray was asked by journalists if he had taken inspiration from the run of Rafael Nadell to another French Open crown and the performances of another 30-something Marion Cilic in reaching the last four. Some inspiration, he replied with a note of caution. The 35-year-old skipped Roland Garros this year to concentrate on his preparations for Wimbledon and was knocked out in a challenging event at Surbiton on Saturday, a performance that will clearly be viewed as a blow for those preparations entirely comparable to the exploits of Nadal and Cilic. In cherry-picking which events he's concentrating on over the summer months, Murray has followed a pass set by Roger Federer, who has, with some success, had to manage back in the injuries in the way that the Scot had to measure his own workload in the light of his ship surgeries in 2018 and 2019. However, if there is a seed of optimism for Murray as he targets Wimbledon, it wasn't witnessed at the weekend in an event he last played in when he was 18 where the three-time Grand Slam winner was beaten by the world number 84, Dennis Kudla. 7. The total number of sets Rafael Nadal, Nadal has dropped in French Open finals on his way to racking up his record 14 singles titles victories at Roland Garros.
And that was this week's Monday kickoff by James Morgan. From Herald Scotland, Monday the 6th of June 2022, from the Voices section, Doug Marr, People who make things should be valued and rewarded more highly. By Doug Marr. When perplexed, my late Uncle George would invariably shake his head and mutter, I don't know. Usually, he had just recounted the latest goings-on at the shipyard where he spent most of his working life. Like most of his workmates, he was proud of Aberdeen's record of building ships of exceptional quality. The renowned clipper, Thurman Pliley, was Aberdeen-built. Its finest hour coming in 1872 when beating its more famous rival, Cutty Sark, hands down in a race from Shanghai to London. Living just round the corner, it was inevitable that my uncle would become an apprentice and then craftsman at the long-vanished yard of Hall Russell & Co. Indeed, living so close to the yard possibly saved his life. On 12th of July 1940, he had gone home for lunch when the yard was hit by a surprise daylight bombing raid, killing several of those he'd been working with that morning. In the post-war years, Uncle George worked on a range of vessels, including trawlers and ships for the Royal Navy. The yard built numerous ferries, including the MVs, Hebrides, Klansmen, Centola and Columba, that served the Northern and Western Isles for many years. He is probably looking down, shaking his head and muttering, I don't know, over the current shambles surrounding the construction on the Clyde of the Glen Sanox, and yet to be named Hull 802. I suspect my uncle and his mates would have had the skills and ingenuity to finish both on time and within budget. Much of the blame for the current ferry fiasco has been directed, probably with good reason, at the Scottish Government, together with inadequate management and project supervision. There has been less scrutiny of whether the workforce is sufficiently skilled to carry out the work. Recurring problems with things such as cabling suggest design, technical and construction failings. Shortfalls in essential skills appear to have been confirmed by the award of subsequent contracts to a Turkish yard. Perhaps significantly, no Scottish yard made even the shortlist. Set in its historical context, it seems barely credible that the skills required to complete relatively small-scale shipbuilding projects have been lost. After all, Clyde shipyards and their highly skilled workers built some of the world's largest and finest ships. The role of honour includes the Lusitania, Lusitania 1906, the ill-fated HMS Hood, 1918, the Queen Mary, 1936, and the QE2, 1969. How on earth has that de come about? One partial explanation is Brexit participated the loss of foreign workers, particularly those who have developed their skills in Polish shipyards. The malaise, however, started much earlier and runs much deeper. It can be traced back to the short-sighted economic policies of the Conservative governments of the 1980s and 1990s. Instead of investing in new technologies, Britain's industrial capacity, including our shipyards, was allowed to wither away. Luckily for Mrs Thatcher and the like, North Sea revenues were able to recover the cost of unemployment as entire communities were thrown out in the scrap heap. The brave in the world was the service economy, epitomised by Harry Enfield's loads of money character. Spivs and braces shouting down phones, not skilled craftsmen, 
were to be the cornerstone of the new economic order. But even that is not the full story. There is a deeper national disdain for those who design and make things. In general, the likes of lawyers, accountants, fund managers and consultants are much more highly regarded and rewarded than genuinely productive designers, engineers and technicians. This defyingly, the desk-bound are accorded higher social status than those who work with their hands. In contrast, German engineers are highly regarded and rewarded, possibly explaining why Germany has a booming manufacturing sector. It's unlikely the UK's manufacturing capacity can be extended until the economic and social status of those who make things is redressed. It can be right that those who simply move other people's money around and receive, not earn, massive salaries and bonuses, far beyond the reach of engineers and technicians. The development of North Sea oil and gas has been one of the very few recent triumphs of British technology. It's no coincidence that much of that is down to the large number of skilled and talented project engineers working in the industry, attracted by high status and salaries. It's significant and possibly symptomatic of national perceptions of engineering that many are foreign nationals. Future prosperity depends on the lessons of the North Sea being replicated more widely. It won't be easy to alter the mindset that making things is somehow demeaning. Negative impressions of careers in engineering and technology may have their roots in schools where practical subjects don't enjoy sufficiently high status, especially for our brightest students. If we're serious about massively expanding our design, technological and manufacturing capacity, the creation of high status slash high reward pathways for our brightest youngsters is long overdue. If not, we are forever condemned to live with the indignity of our inability to build a couple of run-of-the-mill ferries. And that was a comment piece by Doug Marr. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 6th of June 2022, from the Voices section, Leslie Riddock, a different way to mark the Jubilee, by Leslie Riddock, columnist. How do we get bent out of shape protecting comfortable old lies, like the universal popularity of monarchy and its mongrel offspring, the landed aristocracy? Both are symbols of a bygone age, and yet were vigorously paraded this weekend, with relatively little by way of public objection. That doesn't mean that counter-arguments don't exist, and aren't voiced quietly and privately across Scotland. It's just that most folk keep competing realities to themselves. We were brought up that way. Thus, royalty is popular, every news outlet across the world proclaims, and the Queen's Jubilee celebrations have brought the nation closer together in the terrible wake of Covid. It's a comforting conceit, it just isn't universally true. Inescapable wall-to-wall coverage has certainly forced Britain's monarchy back into the public eye, but not necessarily to the royal family's advantage. Red, white and blue bunting is conspicuous by its general absence across Scotland, while the taming of normally challenging news outfits like Channel 4 News and the unsurprising absence of a special jubilee episode of the Windsors confirms that humour, sarcasm and irony must be locked away when the Queen is in focus and replaced with an unnatural, boring and inauthentic worshipfulness. So delicate to the royal family's constitution, that's not to say there isn't a grudging respect, 
or just polite neutrality towards the Queen, whose age, infirmity and recent bereavement reveal her to be a head of a state, but also an isolated elderly woman with some highly dysfunctional family members. Each passing celebratory event seems to confirm that no amount of title, wealth, castles, magazine front pages or contrived mills of bunting can help the relentless progress of time. Will the monarch survive King Charles? Even if the question can barely be asked in TV, the Queen's absence from celebrations have drawn attention and turned to the thorny issue of succession and to the talk of the steamy during family gatherings this bank holiday weekend. And if we're down to arguing that the Royals can unite the country as a highly subsidised, to this attracting ordinary family, including one prince who's paid his six assault accuser £12 million, then the barrel has been well and truly scraped. How many more tourists would be attracted by the emergence of a brand new European state? And if that isn't good enough reason for backing Scottish independence, and it isn't, then it's not a good enough reason to perpetuate the monarchy either. Still, the argument goes, where's the harm? Surely, in the great scheme of things, the taxpayers' royal millions are like a drop in the ocean. They can't interfere in policy and are largely ceremonial, like the vast legion of hangers-on, weak-chinned and occasionally socially useful, almost ob- always the object of some sport, behind their backs, and fundamentally harmless. What's the problem? Thus, no one much cares about the size of the Queen's estate at Balmoral, the way Ikuro's in the Cairngorms National Park seem to stop at her esteemed acres, and absolutely no one cares about associated relics of aristocracy, like the Duke of Sutherland's statue above Goldsby, erected in the 1830s by a supposedly grateful peasantry. Yet, land reform campaigners and independence supporters gathered beneath the 100-foot monument that talks Ben Bragging Saturday for the manifest, an alternative and decidedly unvenerable celebration of the Manny, as the statue is generally known. A local paper forecast disruption by squads of imported troublemakers, a nervous prediction that completely failed to materialise. The Yes Highlanders organised walk through Lens Goldsby up the hill was accompanied by stewards, lest anyone felt tempted to do a coasting at the summit. Very unlikely given the tone of the day and unreachable nature of the man on the planet. But, in another way, the warriors were right. Land reform supporting speeches, music, poetry and readings by Highlanders did constitute disruption to business as usual, in Goldsby and beyond. There are 37 dukes in Britain, each owns land in Scotland and pays virtually no tax for their fiefdoms, like every other large hereditary landowner. Primogeniture, inheritance by the first ball of mail, officially ended before feudalism got the axe in Scotland 20 years ago. But underlying attitudes aren't so quick to change. Most of the large sporting estates along the Grey Coast, as Dumbeath writer Neil Gunn described the eastern coastlines of Caithness and Sutherland, are still inherited by one child to keep the land intact and change hands privately to prevent local community buyouts. The Western Isles was just as heavily cleared in the, the Manny's time, but is now majority community owned and is slowly pegging its way back to vitality. Yet there's only been one large buyout, Garb Alp at Helmsdale, amongst the hundreds of thousands of acres that fringe in relatively unpopulated grey coast. Rivers are off limits to all but the landowners paying guests, 
and employment is still dominated by elite hunting, shooting and fishing interests. It's been this way for so long that many inhabitants believe that aristocratic dominance of their daily lives is fine or acceptable. But for one big problem, where are their children? Likely gone south for jobs and homes, as my own parents did 60 years ago. And there's the rub. So never mind the clearance crimes committed by the manny and his ilk. It's a determination to reshape the future that prompted Highlanders to gather in public at last at the foot of Bembrage. And that polite disruption, voicing what's widely felt about land scarcity, stifled development and doffed caps along the silent coast, was long overdue. Our cobs are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily rep- represent the views of the Herald. This article was written by Leslie Riddick. The Herald, Tuesday the 7th of June 2022, News. Glasgow optician saved woman's life after mini-stroke detected. This article is by Deborah Anderson. A post office worker's life has been saved by a quick-thinking optician. Susan Crammond was at home watching TV when suddenly a terrible pain shot up and down her left arm. She thought nothing of it, but a few minutes later, she went blind in her right eye. It was a terrifying ordeal which left Mrs Crammond in a state of shock. Everything in that eye went black, she recalls. I shouted on my partner, who was upstairs, and told him I couldn't see. For some reason, he decided to shine a torch into my eye, and a few minutes later, a bit of vision returned to the bottom half of the eye. The top half was still blacked out. Her sight gradually returned, but the following day, she went to work in the post office in Glasgow's Easter House's main shopping centre. On hearing about her trauma, her workmates insisted she visit local opticians, Caboodle Eye Care. Ms Cramman said within five seconds the place was like a scene from Casualty. Annette Halnan, the optician, carried out a few rapid tests on my eye and by the look on her face I knew something was seriously wrong. Ms Halnan phoned Ms Cramman's doctor and arranged an emergency appointment for her. The next day she was in Stophill Hospital where she was told she suffered a mini-stroke and was prescribed medication which means she has to take four pills a day for the rest of her life. I'm really pleased Susan came to see me, said Miss Hanlon. The condition, if left untreated, could have resulted in a stroke, which can then lead to death. Currently, it is known that one in 12 people with this condition will have a stroke within one week, so seeing a medical professional quickly is essential. Ms Crammond added, If it wasn't for Annette's quick response, I would have lost my life. This article is by Deborah Anderson. Hello, this is your reader, Jackie. This is The Herald, Monday the 6th of June, 2022. News. Influential Tory website reports most party members want Johnson out. This article is by Tom Gordon. A poll of Tory party members by the influential Conservative Home website has found a majority want MPs to remove Boris Johnson from office tonight. 
The survey found 55% wanted Mr Johnson ousted, compared to 41% who said the party's MPs should support the Prime Minister in a confidence vote. However, a SNAP YouGov poll found the opposite result, with 53% of Tory members saying MPs should support the PM and 42% saying they should topple him. The same poll found Defence Secretary Ben Wallace was the narrow favourite among party members to replace Mr Johnson with 12% support. He was followed by Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, 11%, Former Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt, 10%, International Trade Secretary Penny Mordaunt, 8%, and Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Leveling Up Secretary Michael Gove, both on 7%. A third SNAP poll has found twice as many general electors want Tory MPs to remove Boris Johnson compared to those who want MPs to let him continue in office. The opinion poll conducted today among 2,062 adults in Great Britain found 59% thought Tory MPs should vote to remove Mr Johnson as their leader today. That was more than twice the 28% of voters who want Tory MPs to keep him. Conservative Home Editor Paul Goodman said that in April, the website's panel of more than 1,000 party members expressed overwhelming support for Mr Johnson staying in post. Then 35% thought he should resign compared to 58% against and 7% undecided. Today, the same question found 55% for resignation and 41% for him staying. He said, This is the first time that the panel has concluded that he should go, though the Prime Minister was at the foot of our Cabinet League table last month and in negative ratings. To say that the position has worsened for him again since May the 29th the date of our last survey, is a statement of the obvious and I won't attempt an exhaustive analysis of why that might be so. Other than to point out that the long period of Jubilee celebration hasn't done him any good with the panel. For better or worse, party members don't have a vote later today and MPs must ultimately make what they believe is the right decision for the country, or so we hope. But at over a 1,000 replies in a day, this is a very substantial survey return, our highest this year. And for the record, the panel hasn't changed much since it gave Johnson a 93-point approval rating in the wake of the 2019 general election. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Herald, Monday the 6th of June 2022. News. Solar Group submits plans for nearly 400 Glasgow city centre flats. This article is by Scott Wright. Planning consent is being sought for the development of nearly 400 new residential apartments in Portendas, Glasgow. Developer Solar Group has lodged an application for 359 one and two bedroom homes around a landscaped courtyard at 144 Portendas Road where roof terraces, a residence gym, retail unit, office space and a bike store would also feature.
the homes which have been designed by Glasgow-based Mosaic Architecture and Design are earmarked for the private rented sector. Nick Treadaway, founder and chief executive of Solar Group, said our planning application for 359 apartments will breathe new life into a vacant site at 144 Port Dundas Road, bringing new activity and investment to the area. The apartments have been designed for people looking for easy access to the city centre. When new homes are delivered to a neighbourhood, it's vitally important that they have strong public transport links and offer access to work and leisure facilities. And this is definitely the case at 144 Port Dundas Road. Mosaic director Neil Heining said, the proposed development has been carefully considered to respond to Glasgow's drive to encourage city centre living, which is vital to making Glasgow a sustainable and vibrant place to live. Our application also demonstrates our aim of placemaking a new destination neighbourhood community for Glasgow, which will quickly become part of the urban fabric of the city. 144 Port Dundas Road will be a pedestrian-friendly courtyard development, allowing daylight to illuminate a central public square. Accessed by a landscaped plaza from Port Dundas Road, there will be amenity space as well as roof terraces designed to ensure they are used as part of the everyday life of the building. The Port Dundas project follows Soller's completion of a 201-bed student accommodation building in Glasgow City Centre, now let to the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and fully occupied. It recently submitted a planning application for Phase 2 of the Grade A Carrick Square office development in the city, which will span 250,000 square feet. This article is by Scott Wright. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 7th of June 2022, from the Voices section, Agenda, Why We Need Action Over Issue of Climate Loss and Damage, an agenda piece by Jamie Livingston. COP26 in Glasgow is perhaps fading in our memories, but today the city's name is again at the centre of the global search for climate justice. The new Glasgow Dialogue, established in November's talks, may be taking place in Bonn in Germany, but it is a key test of COP26 and the world's commitment to those hit hardest by the climate crisis. The formal UN dialogue must help secure the funding needed to address loss and damage. The impacts of extreme weather events, like the homes destroyed by a cyclone or the farmland destroyed by sea level rise. While these impacts are unfolding across the world, the poorest people are footing the biggest bill, with the UN also estimating that women account for 80% of those forced to leave their home. But, while finances are available to put solar panels on your roof, the international climate system provides no support if your home is washed away. The calls for financial support by low-income countries and small island states were again rejected by Dutch nations at COP26 in favour of a three-year dialogue. The risk of this being little more than a talking shop is obvious, yet the level of harm can no longer be ignored and the Glasgow Dialogue must help deliver a dedicated finance facility at COP27 in Egypt in November. That's essential, 
With new Oxfam research showing that the existing humanitarian system is already struggling with increasing extreme weather events and is not fit to deal with loss and damage. Our analysis shows that the money sought in UN appeals involving extreme weather events is more than 800% higher than 20 years ago. Yet, in the last five years, rich countries have met, on average, just over half of the funds needed. This failure is global, but the impact is personal. Sanfro Ramata, a farmer from Burkina Faso, is struggling to keep her livestock alive because of a lack of fodder and water due to climate change. She told us, I used to have sheep, about 12 of them. Today there is only one left. We cannot continue to hold vulnerable countries hostage to random acts of charity, as described by the negotiator for the small island states at COP26. Finance must be provided as a matter of justice. Positively, the First Minister recognised this when, at COP26, she made Scotland the first nation in the world to pledge money to help address loss and damage, describing the contribution not as charity but reparation. Rich, more heavily industrialised countries created this crisis and still account for 37% of emissions. Kenya, Somalia, South Sudan and Ethiopia, where 24 million people face food insecurity, generate just 0.1%. Of course, reducing emissions is the surest way to avoid yet more loss and damage, and today we expect to discover if Scotland has hit our annual emissions cut target, have we missed three in a row? That's key, but so is making polluters pay for the damage they inflict, and the Scottish Government should now bolster its position of global, global leadership by exploring new, climate-just sources of finance. Such measures will be critical if the Glasgow Climate Dialogue is to deliver more than just talk. And that was an agenda piece by Jamie Livingston, who is the head of Oxfam Scotland. Recorded from the Herald on the 7th of June 2022, from the sports section, my name's Amy. James Sands Rangers Permanent Transfer Fee Revealed by Ewan Payton The figure Rangers will need to pay to land James Sands on a permanent deal has been revealed, according to one report. The Blight Blues hold an option to buy the versatile midfielder as part of their deal with New York City. Sands joined Giovanni Van Bunker's side on an 18-month initial loan back in January this year. He has been played in midfield at right-back as well as centre-back. The 21-year-old played a bit-part role in the second half of the season, making 14 appearances in all competitions. He will be looking for more game time in the campaign ahead in order to win a permanent switch to Ibrox. An MLS expert, Tom Boggart, said, reckons he'll manage exactly that, with the insider saying Rangers will then have to fork out £4.5 million for the player. He tweeted, Was told Rangers purchase clause for the on-loan NYCFC and USMNT defender James Sands is $6 million. Dunno if there was a loan fee or not, to or not. I would assume Rangers will trigger that. Think he'll be really good this year. Whether the Ibrox club will need to pay quite as much as Bogart suggests remains to be seen. A low figure of around three million pence could be enough to get the deal over the line in 12 months. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 7th of June 2022. From the sports section, my name's Amy. Celtic confirmed Vasilis Barca's season-long loan to Utrecht by Ewan Payton. Celtic have confirmed the departure of Vasilis Barkas on loan. The Greek goalkeeper has joined Dutch side Utrecht for the season ahead. 
both clubs have taken to social media to confirm the move. The 28-year-old signed for the Hoops just two years ago, but has suffered a disappointing time in Scotland. Barca signed for £5 million from AAK Athens in 2020, as Neil Lennon moved to replace Fraser Foster. Things haven't worked out for the keeper at all, though, with a series of high-profile errors in his debut season costing him his place in the side. Ange Postacoglu used Barkas briefly at the start of his tenure one year ago. However, it wasn't long before Scott Bain and then Joe Hart were ahead of the Greek in the pecking order. It has been expected for a while that Barkas would leave the Parkhead side this summer. A permanent deal has not been found yet, though, as Barkas will look to use his lone move in the Netherlands to find first-team action once more. FC Utrecht technical director Jordi Zudem said, due to the ongoing injury of Fabian de Kijizer and the departure of Eric Oshlagli. We aim to strengthen our goalkeepers guild. We are very pleased that this has been achieved with Vasilis Barkas. Vasilis is a big and athletic goalkeeper. He has good reflexes, rules in the air in the box, stands his ground in one-on-one duels and has charisma. Vallis is also an experienced keeper who has been placed into the bar at top clubs in Greece and Scotland and has played the necessary international matches with Greece. He gives our team an absolute boost. That article was by Ewan Payton. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.